0: this time around I spoke to Alison Kiddle and Charlie Gilderdale from Enrich. Now, Enrich is a website that I am pretty sure most of my math teaching listeners will be aware of, and maybe a few of my non math teaching listeners as well. The stated aim of the Enrich project on the website's homepage is to enrich the mathematical experiences of all learners. And Enrich seeks to achieve this by providing a wealth of top quality, free, rich teaching activities and resources supported by workshops, roadshows and professional development events around the UK and beyond. Enrich is a site that I've used frequently since I started my teaching career some 14 years ago. And yet, when I have found myself questioning pretty much everything that I used to think was true about maths teaching over the last couple of years, it's only natural that Enrich has fallen under my gaze as well. Is it really compatible with my increased emphasis on my own brand of explicit instruction that I have found myself believing in so passionately over the last couple of years? Well, there's only one way to find out. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, myself, Alison and Charlie discuss the following things and much, much more besides. Alison describes her early experiences of mathematics and why it led her to believe in the importance of experiencing struggle. We talk about favourite failures, what can go wrong with enrich activities and what we can learn from the experience. We talk about how Enrich has evolved to move it away from a site that's just puzzles for high-attaining students towards something that is teacher-friendly and accessible and beneficial for all students. We then take on some Enrich myths, addressing in particular a concern that I have that students do not get a chance to develop fluency in key skills whilst doing these kind of activities. I ask how often teachers should be using Enrich in their lessons. And then in one of my favourite bits of the interview, we talk about the role of memorisation and facts. What role do they have to play in the understanding of mathematics? And then finally, we we reflect on why it is important that teachers see themselves as mathematicians and not just maths teachers. I absolutely loved this interview. I've been very fortunate to interview some top class double acts on this podcast, including Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson, and of course, Anne Watson and John Mason. And I can now add another to this illustrious list. Alison and Charlie were happy to offer their thoughts and opinions on every area I ventured into, and it left me plenty to reflect upon, which I will tackle as usual in my takeaway at the end of this episode links to every single activity mentioned by Alison and Charlie and there are quite a few I can tell you are available in the show notes as well as links to the big three as usual and if you enjoy our discussion on purposeful practice that crops up a fair bit throughout this interview and you want to know more then I discuss it at length with Colin Foster in one of my favourite ever podcast interviews and I also feature it in chapter 10 of my book How I Wish I'd Taught Maths which is available from all good And all evil bookstores. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Alison and Charlie. Now, just a word of warning. If you haven't picked up on it already, I have a horrendous life-threatening cold, allegedly and rather disparagingly known as man flu, in the days before this interview. And indeed, 24 hours prior to it, I actually completely lost my voice. My wife was delighted. Anyway, I just about muddled through, but any breaks in the audio are, for once, not due to sound quality issues. And any any random changes in the pitch of my voice are, for once, not due to me getting overly excited. I really hope it doesn't rejoice, reduce your enjoyment too much. Anyway, enjoy this one. I am sure you will. And as ever, I will see you... Okay, so welcome to Alison and Charlie to the podcast. And we start, as we always do, with math speed dating questions. So I'm coming to you first, Alison. What is your favourite number and why?
1: Well, uh, I'm afraid, like some of your previous correspondents, I'm going to be difficult about this one because I don't have a favourite number.
0: Alison, I'll tell you what, I would have put a tenner on you having one here. I cannot believe this. Um,
1: I've got got lots of favourite numbers. Um, I think what I like most is relationships between numbers. So there are numbers that I feel quite friendly towards and numbers that when I recognize them, I think about people that they remind me of in some cases. Um, I really like 576. (laughs) And I especially like 676 because they are 24 squared and 26 squared, respectively. And I just think it's really cool that they differ by 100.
0: Nice. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that one. How about, how about yourself, Charlie? Do you have a favourite number?
2: Well, I, I don't usually have a favourite number, <clears throat> but in order to answer this question, I thought about it, and I I've plumped on for fifteen. Fifteen because uh, I associate it with one of my favourite problems, which is the one um, about summing consecutive numbers. So fifteen
1: can be written as a sum of two consecutive numbers: seven plus eight. It can be written as a sum of
2: three consecutive numbers four plus five plus six and it can also be written as a sum of five consecutive numbers one plus two plus three plus four plus five so i associate 15 with with that problem which uh which is one of my favorites
0: so i'll i'll get for that one that's a lovely answer i like that well thank you both of you for that one and back to you alison how about your favorite topic in maths as a student
1: oh gosh how far back do you want me to go completely up to you i don't mind okay um when I first met geometric series I was completely blown away. I can tell you exactly when it was. It was when I was uh, in year 10 and we were doing a piece of coursework about a frog jumping across a river and every time it jumped it could only get a fraction of the way across so then it would turn around and try to jump back. And we started off just you know working out the fractions, working out the decimals on a calculator and I was like, there must be a better way to do this. Um, My teacher lent me a book about a, a sixth form book that had some stuff about sequences and series in. And I took it home and I read it and I read about geometric series. I figured out how to apply it to this particular problem. And I just ended up going off on one, going down a rabbit hole and working out all of this this stuff to do with this frog jumping over a river (laughs) and it was just beautiful because I was doing all of this algebra and it was then all nicely falling out and and these lovely results happening that when you're adding stuff to do with halves you were getting thirds Um, so yeah that was a favorite moment that's lovely. And can I
0: just ask, Alison, in that moment, were the were your other classmates were they as kind of engaged in this problem as you were? What 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 was the kind of dynamic in in, in that particular class like? Can you remember?
1: I can. Um, they uh, most of them were engaged. Not many of them. It, well, none of them did geometric series with me, but I think they thought it was quite cool that I got quite so into it, if that makes sense.
0: Nice, it certainly does. And how about yourself, Charlie, do you have a favourite topic?
2: I remember my first week studying A-level maths, Um, so I'd been reasonably good at maths um, until until that age, Um, sort of following instructions, everything was sort of quite logical and uh, reasonably straightforward to follow, but it wasn't until I got to A-level where I had a teacher who got really excited about what he was teaching, and it was that first lesson on calculus and uh, the idea of limiting value and the idea of differentiation, and not only were the ideas uh, completely different to anything that i had done, sort of, prior to A-level, but I also had a teacher who was getting very, very excited. So I remember that as, wow, this is going to be very different to what's, what, what I've experienced before. And I suppose uh, a lot of the algebra that we did at A-level, um, I remember, uh, I, I realised, of course, that the questions were carefully chosen, but the way that everything cancelled out and you had something enormous to start with, and then you simplified and simplified and simplified and you've got an expression which capture the generality. That, that
0: seemed very special. Fantastic. Superb. And, and back to you, Alison, for the last speed dating question. Um, if you weren't involved in mathematics education, what, what what job would you like
1: to do? Well, that's easy. Um, I, 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 I'd I be uh, an air crash investigator.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really?
1: Yeah, definitely. That would be my dream job outside of maths ed. How, how come? Well, I, I find I find aviation fascinating, and I really like the problem-solving process that they go through when a plane's crashed. It, it's like people who watch CSI and get really into it. Um, it's that they've they've got to figure out what happened in order to, to make the world a safer place, and they have very limited data to go on. They do loads and loads of maths and, and physics and stuff in working out you know trajectories of, of parts after a crash and things like that um so yeah
0: there we are flipping it that's the first house and we've never we've never had that one i like it and how about yourself charlie
2: well I, i used to be quite a good tennis player when i was younger so there are times when i sit in my office and the sun is shining and i see people outdoors and i think goodness wouldn't i love to be outside so something outdoorsy i would have loved to have spent more time playing tennis but then um uh, I was brought up. Um, I was brought up in, in Argentina, where it was a lot sunnier than it is here. So <laughs> there are plenty of days when I'm really glad to be indoors. So um, I'm, I, I'm glad of the choices I've made.
0: That's great, superb. Well, um, before we dig deep into to enrich, um, I wonder if you just give us give us and the listeners just a quick overview of your careers and where did it all start and how did you get to where you are today? And if we, we go to you first, Alison, please.
1: Okay um I think I had a fairly standard trajectory into teaching uh, I did a maths degree I towards the end of my degree I was thinking about what to do next my confidence had been knocked during my degree and I kept on going back to how much I'd enjoyed maths at school and how I was enjoying it less at university and I guess teaching came on my radar as something that would allow me to go back and do some of the bits of maths that I'd enjoyed, but see them in a different way. Uh, So I did a PGCE. uh, Then I lived in Peterborough for three years, um, taught there, uh, learned a lot about classroom management. And I think I went into teaching knowing about maths and not knowing very much about children. And that first job shifted my perspective a little. And I realised that actually teaching was definitely for me because it combined doing mathematics, which I love, and being able to change people's lives and have an impact on young people, which then became my subsequent love. Uh, I moved schools because the school where I'd done my PGC placement, which I'd loved to bits down in Hertfordshire, were advertising. And so I, I moved in and taught there for a couple of years. And that was good because I had the chance to teach further maths, which wasn't available at my first school. And again, that was great because I was spending much of my time trying to persuade the further mathematicians that they definitely wanted to study math at university, not physics. Uh, (laughs) And while I was at that second school, uh, Enrich were advertising. This would have been autumn of 2008. So I'd been teaching five and a half years at that point. And I kind of put in a speculative application, not really expecting to get an interview because I thought they'd want someone with much more than five and a half years experience. But they offered me the interview and I came and I met Charlie and uh, all of the other Enrich colleagues and impressed its interview enough for them to offer me the job At which point I said to my best friend at the time, oh, and Richard offered me the job. What should I do? (laughs) And she said, well, phone them back and say that you accept. (laughs) And I I was very apprehensive that I wasn't going to be able to to make such a a big step. But we are a small team and everybody on the team at, at the time made me very very welcome and helped with the transition from being in the classroom to working for Enrich and uh yeah I I think I just hit the ground running and started writing problems I look back now on the problems that I wrote in my first year at Enrich and just think these are terrible How, how, (laughs) how did I do this um And and then go back and and rewrite them all uh, with Charlie's help a lot of the time. Charlie and I didn't work together quite as much in my first year as we do now. Uh, It was I focused really just on Key Stage 4 stuff when I first arrived. And then we gradually started talking more about the transition between Key Stage 3 and 4 and five with my colleague, Steve Houston, who has uh, since retired on health grounds and is very, very sadly missed. Um, but then the longer that I was here, the more it became the case that working with Charlie closely seemed to bring out the best in both of us because we challenge one another's thinking. And uh, he is brilliant at editing. When I write rubbish, <laughs> he then tells me she never writes rubbish. <laughs> I, I, I often write rubbish. Um, and, and yeah. And, and so coming up for 10 years now, it will be uh, 10 years in January since I joined Enrich. that's my career
0: and just just before just before I I asked Charlie the same question just just something you you said there Alison about um how your confidence um, in maths went at university well when you look back at that time now um is is there a reason for that was it the difficulty of, of the content was it how it was taught that was different from school and if you were to go back now and do that degree do you think you'd enjoy it more
1: Oh, I think I'd enjoy it much more. I'd love to be able to go back and give myself advice. I think it's to do with the situation that I was in because I was at a very, very competitive university at a college that had a very, very strong record of great mathematicians. And I was surrounded by extremely high achievers. And I just didn't adjust very well to you know finding things difficult i hadn't had enough experience in the past of what to do when i couldn't solve a problem and so i didn't have that resilience i also had lots of other things going on um some listeners might be aware that i was diagnosed last december with uh, asperger's syndrome so Obviously, that's a a lifelong thing and that was affecting me at university, but I didn't have a label for it and I didn't have any support for it. So there was there was quite a lot going on at that time. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I wonder
0: now what whenever you say that you, you when you work with year 13 students, I wonder if you can kind of see a lot of yourself in them in the sense that that they've probably, always found maths relatively straightforward. Certainly at GCSE they'll have been successful with it and perhaps some elements of further maths will have will have caught them out. But I've certainly worked with year thirteen students who've breezed through maths A level and you almost kind of you want them to have experienced challenge and failure to a certain extent don't you at some point so you can kind of support them through it because otherwise you get great mathematicians like yourself who when they experience it for the first time especially if they've got other stuff going on it it can be quite a shock and in in some cases I've seen students who just kind of leave university and and never return to mathematics if if that makes sense.
1: Yeah I think uh, for me learning about uh, Carol Dweck's research and and thinking about uh, growth mindset that was quite useful to me, and that would be something that I would want to go back and, and tell the the younger version of myself, because I think I had good at maths as part of my identity, yes. and I think I believed that good at maths and bad at maths were inherent qu- qualities of a of a person, rather than you know this is where my current level of maths achievement is. And I can improve it by working. And part of the thing that will improve it is experiencing struggle. And I, I briefly mentioned Steve Hewson, uh, former uh, Key Stage 5 coordinator at Enrich. One of the things that he often used to say was that every child deserved to have the experience of success yes. in school maths. But the flip side of that is every child deserves to have the experience of failure in school maths. And he said that both of those things were necessary. If, if a child goes through, through school and they never succeed at maths, then that's devastating. But if a child goes through school and they get all the way to year 13 and they've never struggled with a problem, then that's just as bad because they've not had the chance to learn those skills of resilience.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, Absolutely. Well, um, Charlie, I've I've held you back too long here. You you must be desperate to tell us about your career here. So (laughs) (laughs) let let me bring you in at this point. And how did you get to where you are today?
2: Okay, so so like Alison, I also did BGC and then I taught in an 11 to 16 village school um, sort of in the outskirts of Cambridge uh, until I was a head of department there. That was a fairly traditional school, but we had SMP textbooks which uh, um, had been written with so some of the new mathematics in mind. So I found that interesting. It wasn't just about uh, knowing what to do, it was also about understanding why you were doing things. During my PGC course, I'd come across the work of Richard Skemp, who'd talked about relational understanding as opposed to instrumental understanding. So so relational understanding, knowing what to do and why you're doing it, as opposed to instrumental understanding, uh, where you sort of know the rules, um, but you don't know the reasons why those rules work. Um, And and the school was a fairly conventional school, um, but we had um, uh, advisory teachers in Cambridgeshire, and one of them was Lyndon Baker, and he sort of took me under his wing and um, encouraged me to get involved in, uh, with ATM kind of activities and um, uh, introduced me to a whole group of other teachers in, in Cambridgeshire. At the time, afsal Ahmed had written Better Mathematics, so there was the LAMP Project, uh, so some of us were were meeting, there, there were lots of meetings after school. We had GCSE mode or CSE mode 3, which we used to make, sort of make up. So there was a lot of interaction between teachers uh, in different schools. Um, and then I got involved with mentoring in the school. Uh, and with that, after I'd been at the school for nine years, and then I joined the Faculty of Education in Cambridge, working with PGC students. And that was for the next sort of nine, ten years. Um, and that was a, a very interesting time to, to join the faculty. Uh, we had David Hargreaves as the, the head of faculty and later on Donald McIntyre, who were both very keen on uh, the faculty working closely with, with schools. So, um uh, we would work with mentors. Uh, I got to visit lots of schools. Uh, I worked to Ken and, um I then I, I met other PGC tutors, Lorinda Brown, Dave Hewitt. Uh, joined, uh, got more involved with ATM activities and the like. So that that, that period w- w- was fascinating in, in a very different way. So that a lot of the time when you're at school, you know, you feel a little bit isolated. All of a sudden. Being able to work with so many, with so many different teachers, so many different schools, um, were, were, was fascinating. And then, then I've been at Enrich for goodness um, almost twenty years. <laughs> and and um, initially, I was doing a lot of work in India, and uh, rather than for Enrich, but I've sort of elbowed my way into doing more and more work for Enrich. And then since Alison's been here for almost ten years, we've been working quite closely together. And as she says, um, we complement each other really beautifully. Uh, and um, and we get. what's really nice is we sort of get excited by maths, by, by very similar things. Uh, so uh, on, on good days, we, we we come to the end of the day and sort of a slight surprise that we've been paid for doing the work <laughs> that we do. But uh, we've been playing with maths. Uh, we're, we're very keen on finding opportunities for children to experiment, conjecture, uh, think about, uh, explain, uh, we're heavily influenced by the work of John Mason, this idea of conjecturing, leading to generalising, leading to proof. Um, So we're often trying to develop problems with with that in mind. Um, No doubt we'll talk about that later on
0: can i can i just ask you charlie uh, on that as well just just one thing you said early on there when, when you started teaching that you used the um, the smp um textbooks earlier on in your career and the reason i asked this is um i recently interviewed uh, lucy crean for the podcast who's the author of cleverlands and she, yes. she's visited lots of high performing regions and one of the things that kept coming back from that was um high quality textbooks were, were prevalent in, in these regions would you say that were smp just about the best that, that you've ever seen would you say and do you think there's a there is there a place for something similar to that now a high quality textbook that's that's widely used across schools in the uk um
2: inevitably because i started teaching using smp books i was quite taken by them but i was also at the time i during my pgc year i went to london to visit a school that used the smile resources yes and um and here the the math center for cambridgeshire had Lots of SMILE resources which they weren't using, so they they sort of let me take take over take them over. Um, partly because um, I was I was teaching um, some rather weak students who um, who were um, aiming for quite low CSE uh, re- results, and it didn't seem to me that the textbooks were doing them any favours, um, and. I used the smile cards with them, and uh, in, in, it, it was quite nice that they could set the, the, their own trajectory through the work, that they could collaborate the, around, talking to each other around the tables and the like. Um, and those those resources, well, one of the things that I liked about those resources is that they have been Te- most of them had been written by stu- by teachers in London. They'd been tested by teachers in London before they'd been published. Um, and they required students to do quite a lot of the thinking. They weren't completely dependent on me, on sort of spoon-feeding everything. Um, so th- there were quite different resources, the, the textbooks from, from from the smile cards. Uh, but they seemed to... Um, Suit the needs of different students. Uh, I, w- one of the things I liked about the, the smile cards. I, I I remember one of the tutors I had when I was a PGC student. Uh, John Sutcliffe said to me, "Your job is to make yourself redundant." <laughs> and what he what he had in mind was that uh, when the students left my classroom at the end of the year or at the end of the time in school, they should be they should be equipped to go off and do maths on their own without me having to always hold them by the hand. The way that I think about it is the way that parents um, sort of prepare their children, their young children, for crossing the road. So when the children are very young, they they hold their hand and they cross together, and the parent tends to decide when the road is safe to cross. And as the children get a, a bit older, the children start making those decisions. The children start wanting to cross the road without holding their hands. But uh, And slowly the parents give the children more and more autonomy, more and more independence, and eventually they, you know, give them a couple of pounds and say, can you go and get me some milk? <laughs> uh, we've run out of milk. And that idea that eventually you want the children to be able to run off and, uh, 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 and not need you uh, in order to be able to... to To operate, to perform. So um, the the smile cards were 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 quite good because it did require the children to sort of make sense of what was in front of them, um, rather than just expect me to start the lesson by always having to explain everything to them.
0: Absolutely, and it's funny. the On this podcast, they come up about once every six months. A guest mentions the smile cards, and I always link to them. And it's uh, there's a, a generation of teachers that just aren't aware of them, and I, I think they're absolutely fantastic. So you've you've prompted me to put another link to them there, Charlie. So okay. thank, yeah. thanks for that. Um, can I just ask you now? This this is one of my favorite kind of parts of the show, and I always ask my guests this um, to describe a favorite failure. And it's up to you how you want to take this one. It can either be something that you've you've experienced both in your early <coughs> teaching career or it can be enriched specific perhaps you've either delivered or observed an Enrich activity that went wrong but what I'm interested in is is why did it go wrong and crucially what did you learn as a result of the experience
1: that's a very good question um, any thoughts Charlie
0: well
2: I, I, I sort of want to answer that in, in a sort of rather general way rather than thinking about any lesson in particular and I suspect the lessons that go badly wrong are the ones where I'm very determined that we're going to get to... An, there's an end point, and I'm determined we're going to get there. And I don't listen to... I don't look out for the cues that the class are giving me as to whether the, the sort of... the end point that I have in mind actually is suitable for the group of students that I have. So it might be that um, I'm going too slowly or maybe I'm going too fast, but I, I suspect often... Um, it might be that I've got rather optimistic expectations of where I'm going to get to. I I know that there is maybe um, uh, uh, an end point that brings everything together and it's rather exciting. And so I rush to get there, not realising that I've sort of left students behind.
1: I suppose that comes from the challenge that we have, that we no longer have our own classes so we borrow classes from other people to try stuff out and, and uh, to, when, when we we're invited to, to lead workshops and, uh, and such like and so there are all the things that you have as a teacher your prior relationship with the students your knowledge about what they've already learned and you bring all of those things uh, to the classroom and if you're planning a workshop for some kids that you're going to spend an hour and a half with and then never see again it is very very different I think it took me a while to get used to that transition when I first joined Denrich. we taught a lesson together quite early on didn't we the tilted squares one um So if if you go on the the Enrich problem tilted squares in the teachers notes you can watch uh, me and Charlie team teaching a group of were they year nines
2: the younger versions of Alison and Charlie yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh,
1: so so a group of year nines came to to Cambridge for the day and they they were having a a, a tour of one of the colleges and various other things and and we were asked if we could do a mass enrichment activity with them and we said that as long as we could film it so that we could then use it in professional development uh, that we'd be happy to to do tilted squares with them and if you watch that video you will see all the things that can go wrong (laughs) when doing an enrich activity but i think you can also see the beginnings of what a teacher might do when things unexpected happen. We ended up spending a lot longer on certain parts of the lesson than I think we planned to, because what the student said to us wasn't necessarily what we expected. I think uh, my biggest regret about that lesson is that tilted squares is just the most beautiful way to introduce Pythagoras's theorem. And the whole lesson went by and we got to the generalization to find the area of any tilted square. And we didn't mention the Uh name Pythagoras. (laughs) And so these children went away and they'd learned this brilliant way of finding out areas of of squares. And they didn't have the name for it. So I very much hope that after that, that on, on the coach home, that the teacher said, oh, by the way, what you learned today was a proof of Pythagoras' theorem, and you know we're going to be doing that next week. Uh. I mean,
0: it's interesting. that like there's there's a couple of things that, that spring to mind there, and I don't know if you agree with me on, on on either of these things. But but the first is that a mistake I've made in the past when I've when I've used enrich activities or, or similar kind of less structured, and open ended activities, is that I almost forget all my kind of formative assessment strategies because I kind of see them as a different lesson. Whereas yeah. if I'm if I'm teaching something else, um, say Pythagoras in a more, I mean, this is the wrong phrase, but a more kind of conventional, traditional way, mm-hmm. I will make sure that. That I um, assess students' abilities to square numbers and square root and identify hypotenuse and so on. But almost, if I'm doing it in a viral enrich activity, I'll, I'll almost kind of forget that side of things, and and that'll lead me to either go too fast or go too slow or make assumptions that aren't founded on any evidence. I think that's that's one mistake I've made. Is is that something that you, you've seen in the past?
1: Yeah, I think that is something that that we've we've learned over the the time that we've worked together. It's certainly something that, that Charlie has, has taught me. Uh, Charlie is brilliant at considering the pace when he's working with students. I get so excited when I can see that we're very, very close to some understanding happening and and, and I, I, I I want to carry the class along with me and and and, and get to the punchline and, and <laughs> I, I think Charlie is a little bit more patient than me and uh, has physically held me back uh, from intervening when students are discussing things in in, in the past, which is always appreciated. Um, <laughs> I don't
2: recognise what Alison is saying at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think,
0: oh sorry Alison, go on.
1: You, you're much better at giving students thinking time than I am, I think.
0: I think um the other thing I was going to say alongside the formative assessment, and this goes back to what charlie was was saying there is that a mm. mistake i 've made is um and even with my own class that I've taught for years, when I try an activity like this, um, I I have an idea that this is going to take one lesson or this is going to take two mm-hmm. lessons, and therefore they need to get to this particular endpoint. And inevitably, it's it's quite hard to predict, you know, which kids are going to get where, and we could be going off on tangents left, right, and centre. And because I've got this in mind that by the end of this lesson we need to have achieved this certain thing or reached this goal, I think that's where sometimes lessons um, like this can go off the rails. And particularly is the case if i'm being observed um i think if i'm being watched by somebody then i'm even more conscious especially if i've committed to something in a lesson plan that the kids are going to get to this point then, then i'm in trouble if mm. I, I start thinking i'm in trouble if not and it goes back to just this morning um before um, i called you for this interview i was reading a, a blog post by danny brown um who talked about um a lesson he did with fractions and mike ollerton chipped in in the comments saying that um his end of the, very rarely does he have a plenary or anything at the end of the lesson aside from just kind of discuss what this lesson was about and what you've learned because he doesn't want to be tied to finishing something within 50 minutes and that learning's a continuous thing and if you don't get to where you should be or where you thought you were going to be you just pick it up the next lesson and, and continue but is is so is is that something that again that you, you can relate to in the act, enrich activities that you've delivered and seen kind of trying to put a constraint on when the thing finishes, whenever it's not naturally at that point where it should finish, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think uh, what I tend to do now is if I've planned a workshop, I'll have in mind what I'll be able to cover in the time allowed. But I will be constantly reassessing that over the course of the workshop. And I suppose the same would be true if it if it was a conventional lesson, uh, I'll think this has taken longer than I expected. This is going to be my new endpoint for this workshop. And of course, it's the end, end point forever in my case, because yes. uh, I'm not going to see them again. But obviously, if I, I was their, their regular teacher, I'd have the luxury that then I would know where I was going to be able to, to pick up. So I think I've become better at working out the different places that you can stop and of course that's the beauty of a low threshold high ceiling task if it's open-ended and it can go off in in multiple directions and go off up, up to the sky being the limit that also means that there have to be natural stopping places because part of a low threshold high ceiling task is that you're not expecting everybody to reach the same finishing point and if i think back to that task in year 10 that i mentioned in the the speed dating with the frog crossing the river for some of the people in the same class as me discovering what happened for a frog jumping over and covering half the distance each time and realising that it tended to a third and two thirds, that was a really good endpoint. point yes. for those students. And for some others, they might have generalised to what if he's jumping one over N of the way across. And then for me, it was what if he's jumping M over N of the way across. And so if I was using an activity like that, I would have these as possible endpoints where I could happily bring the group together and talk about that particular bit of understanding yes. and not worry that we hadn't got to the very furthest that this could put it. And something I tend to do now when I'm working with students is to use the last five minutes of a workshop just to signpost what they could go on and do next so if they've enjoyed this if they're interested in it these are the things to to look up um normally i'm working from an enriched problem so there'll be things suggested at the bottom of the problem of links that they can follow to other tasks and so that they see this as being one episode from a journey and that They have to stop. But the reason they're stopping is purely because we've run out of time, not because we've run out of maths
0: got it that makes perfect sense and well I want to I mean you've kind of teased us with a a little bit of kind of what makes a good Enrich activity and throughout you both of your answers early on and just before I get to that I just want to get a bit of kind of practicalities out of the way and that's the I've noticed over the last couple of years um, the Enrich site has evolved a fair bit in terms of the structure the layout and the look of it and particularly I would imagine that um, the audience listening to this pretty much everyone will have heard of Enrich pretty much everyone will have visited Enrich but I wonder if we've got a listener here who perhaps hasn't visited in the last six to twelve months or something how's Enrich uh, evolved recently and 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 why has it changed in that way?
1: Charlie do you want to say a bit about before my time and we'll we'll just do a a potted history of Enrich in five minutes.
2: That'd be great. So so I suppose in the early days Enrich started (coughs) as um, a partnership (coughs) between uh, Cambridge and the Royal Institution so there's an r and an i in enrich which is because originally the Royal Institution supported the, uh, the, the, the the very start of enrich so there's a c in enrich from from Cambridge i think the h might be from homerton um and uh, <coughs> And the idea was that the, um, the Royal Institution was organising lots of masterclasses. Uh, lots of children used to maybe go on Saturday mornings uh, to a series of masterclasses. Here in Cambridge, we used to organise sort of five consecutive Saturday mornings for year eight students. And then once one group had c- come along, we had another set of five and then another set of five. So by the end of the academic year, um uh, uh, some year eight students from all from all the the, the the schools had had a chance to to experience the master classes but there was that feeling that well, once the master classes were over um they'd go back to school and back to often uh, back to very traditional teaching uh, nothing really had had changed um and the, and the idea there was that if, if, if children enjoyed music, they could go to school, and apart from their music lessons, they could join the school orchestra or the school choir. If they if they enjoyed sport, not only did they have P lessons, but they could join the school teams, and there were lots of clubs outside the school. The, if, if they enjoyed literature, they could join the drama group. They could go to bookshops and libraries and the like. There wasn't very much for mathematicians, um, except for the chess club in, in, in many schools. Uh, often, it was the math department that ran the chess club. Um, so, the feeling was that we needed to do something to cater for these students who might be interested in maths and might be interested in something other than just textbook mathematics. <laughs> so that's what that, that, that's what Tony Bearden had in mind when she started enrich right at the, at the start, um, which was sort of just over twenty years ago now. Um, and then people like Jenny Piggott and I arrived in enrich and we started thinking wait a minute, Uh, everybody deserves a rich mathematical experience, uh, not just the highest attaining students, there are lots of problems that we'd used in our classrooms that we thought uh, were worth sharing, that um, everybody would enjoy working on. Uh, And one of the things that I think made a difference was that Jenny Piggott and I used to go to Wales for uh, a whole week um, at a time, and we would each teach in a different school each day, in a different city each day. So, you know, we, we'd go to Swansea and we would each teach in a different school, meet up at the end of the day, drive to Cardiff, teach there the following day, each at a different school, get, meet up at the end of the day, drive somewhere else, and um, and try out and enrich problems. And we realised that, actually many of the problems were were not very accessible to the majority of students. And so we started changing the the problems. We started aiming for problems that were going to suit a much wider attainment range. Um, and then, you know, Alison joined us and both of us were very keen to, to do this. And this is when we started talking about low-threshold, high-ceiling tasks, <coughs> this idea that, Tasks can be easy to step into, but can be carried on and can become more and more challenging. Uh, So one example that I have is there's a problem on the site called odds and evens. Uh, I think it starts with something like um, a couple of odd numbers and maybe three even numbers. uh, And they're they're written in balls in a bag and you take two two out at a time and you add the totals. And if if the total is even, you win. And the total is odd, you lose. Um, is this a fair game? Uh, and it isn't quite. Uh, it, it's not equally likely to get an even total and an odd total. Um, and, and the problem can sort of finish there, uh, uh, or it can be extended to: Well, what about if we have other combinations of odds and evens? Um, and so students can can, can try that, uh, experimenting with that. Um, other students can then start noticing. That there is something special about the combinations that work. For example, if you have just one even number and three odd numbers, then you have an equal chance of getting an even total and an odd total. Uh, but there are other combinations. I, I'm not going to give away give, <laughs> give away what's special, but you know, one one odd and three even works, or uh, one even and three odds. Uh, but there are there, actually there are an infinite number of different combinations that work for a different number of of both, and and all of a sudden um, we 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 can start explaining what's going on, and and with six forms we can start proving why these are the only combinations that work because there's something very special about the combinations that work. Um, I did some work with a group of teachers locally, and I mentioned this problem. We worked on this problem with a group of teachers, and the next time I saw the head of maths, he said to me that the following day he had used this problem with every single class that he taught. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's, um, that, that's yes, yeah, so, so there's been a slightly different emphasis. So I suppose some of the people who came across Enrich in the very early days are still as associate which with problems only for the high attainers. And we, we work quite hard at sort of dispelling that myth.
1: I think the other big difference, uh, teachers' notes were added to the problems, and, and that started a short while before I joined enrich so every new problem that we write and most of the archive now has got teachers resources that suggest why teachers might want to use this problem and a uh, suggestion of what the lesson might look like the key questions that might be asked and then suggestions of extension and support activities together with uh, any printable resources that you need to to do the problem and so
0: on. Can I just ask on that? And this go, this goes back to something Charlie just said, and, and perhaps you can pick up on this, Alison. And um, my experience sometimes is that so teachers will come to a workshop, and it may be an enriched workshop, or it may be a workshop that and teachers running on something completely different, and they get dead enthused during the day, thinking this is brilliant, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. And then as Charlie says, the next day they use that task or activity with every single one of the kids, and they have a great time. But then it's 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 getting that to be a a long-lasting change in in their way that they they teach and plan lessons and so on. How is is that something you've encountered as, as a problem? And, and how has the kind of site evolved? Say, for example, if I come on an enrich day and Charlie does the odd and even thing, I'm going to use that tomorrow. But then next week I am teaching, adding fractions to my year nines and I want something of similar quality. Can, can I find that easily? And how, how do you kind of tackle that as an issue?
1: Well, that's why we did the curriculum mapping documents. And I'm still surprised when i find that teachers don't know about the curriculum mapping documents and that's mainly why we did our most recent uh, site redesign to try and make everybody aware that basically uh all the way from primary all all the way through um and for for secondary as as well we taken the national curriculum statements for mathematics and wherever there's Uh, problem that we think is really really good for teaching that particular topic uh, we've uh, hyperlinked it so that teachers can find the statement that they are teaching find the part of the curriculum content that they're teaching and then see which problems we recommend for teaching that and these documents have been around well longer than i've been at at, at fmh and updated every time the government changes the national curriculum and yet there there are still teachers who use enrich but they don't know about that particular way of finding problems so when we had our most recent meetings about how to freshen up the look of the site to make it easier to find things we've got thousands upon thousands of resources on the site i think the latest Problems have something like ID uh, thirteen thousand and something. Uh, I, I don't want to mislead uh, your audience and, and suggest that every single one of those is a problem. Some of those are, are resources that were used for various test things and then deleted it and so on. But there are you know thousands of resources there, and so five minutes before a lesson, when you're thinking, oh crikey, I need something to to do with this year ten group that I'm I'm covering um what can i do they need to do something on fractions you can't easily find what's the best fraction resource for for that uh, that particular situation so We've got the mapping documents just to say, well, look, if you only do one Enrich resource on adding fractions, make it this one, because this is the one that we've put the most thought into, that we've written the best teacher's notes for. And we try and make sure that the problems that are on the mapping document are the the very best, the ones that we would recommend the most. And you can now get to them if you're on the Enrich homepage. We've made it very obvious that if you're a teacher, you can get free resources, free curriculum mapping documents, and then there are links to just just click through to get you straight there so that you can get to exactly what you need to find straight away.
0: Got it. Superb. And just before we we kind of dig into some enriched myths, and I was going to ask this later on, but it, it, I'll, I'll I'll be really mad at myself if I forget to ask this. So I thought I'm going to come in coming early with this one. This could take us off on a tangent somewhere else, but I'm I'm going to take the risk. And um, with something like that, Alison. So say for example, I'm I'm teaching adding fractions to my year eights or something, and I go on the um, curriculum mapping document. Do you do you have a view on the kind of order these tasks should be used in terms of being used alongside a more kind of traditional form of teaching. So for example, are there certain tasks where I would do kind of teach in a traditional direct instruction or whatever label we want to put on it way and then do an Enrich NRA- acti- activity activity? <laughs> And are there a separate group where actually, no, I'm going to introduce the skills via the Enrich activity? Do you distinguish between them in that sense? Or is is that not a useful distinction?
1: That's a very good question. And it's something that I think we've thought about internally, but we haven't yet found the best way of of communicating that on the site. Uh, I know we well, we worked quite closely with the team from Underground Maths when that project was uh, w- was going on. And they had ways of indicating to teachers whether a task was an introductory task or a consolidation task and, and so on. And we've had conversations among the team about whether we could do anything like that on Enrich. Uh, the problem being that there are some tasks that are really good for consolidation for one topic but are also great for introducing another topic so we mentioned tilted squares earlier you don't have to use tilted squares to introduce pythagoras you could do it not even mention pythagoras well like like we did i suppose Um, (laughs) but use it as a a consolidation task about finding the areas of triangles and rectangles and and squares uh, and so on um So I think we try and capture it in the teacher's notes and we hope that if a teacher finds a problem on the mapping document, they're doing their planning uh, enough in advance that they can have a quick read through of the teacher's notes. And we'll indicate in there this is the sort of stuff that the students are going to need to know already. And these are the skills that they're going to develop by working on this task. This is a good task for introducing something or this is a good task for practicing a particular skill. So we put it in there and and we're trying to reduce the burden on teachers of doing rich tasks, because one of the things that we hear is that it is very time consuming to change the way that you teach. If you are used to teaching in a particular way, then to change your, your style of teaching involves lots and lots and lots of work. So in order to to make that a little bit easier for teachers, we, we write these teacher's notes to try and cover what those those key points are so that they can then make the decision whether that task is one that they're going to do. And I hope that a teacher who read the teacher's notes that actually this is not suitable yet because my students haven't yet done this, that, that that teacher would then sort of you know, bookmark the problem and, and say, but it would be a really good task to do with this other class or to do with this particular class, but in three weeks' time or, or something like that. Got um, Oh, sorry,
2: go on, Charlie. Yes, it's interesting thinking about underground maths because they work in the same building that we work in. Um, so they were envious of us and we were envious of them um, in the early days. They were envious of us because we had so many resources and they were sort of starting from scratch. But we were envious of them because they started with a blank slate and so they could really be clear about our agenda has changed. So when Tony Bearden started 20 odd years ago, it was very much this is going to be a club for uh, high-attaining students who want to do a bit more maths outside the classroom um, and who don't get that opportunity in the way that musicians and sportsmen and, and others do. Um, and our agenda has changed. And as it's changed, we've been changing the problem, learning teachers' resources, changing the look of the site and so on. But now, because you know we've got a few thousand, some thousand problems there, to go back and uh, categorise them, which is really perhaps the kind of thing that you're asking and that underground maths was thinking uh, did, uh, would, t- would just take up so much of our time because there is so much to to look at and so on. So the, the way we get around it is, is trying to uh, write teachers' resources that, that clarify that.
1: And um, to pick out those resources that if you only do one thing off enrich make it this one and to to have our mapping document just say these are these are the best start here and then click on links and and fall down a rabbit hole by all means but but start here
2: but i think part of your question craig was about how how do we use these problems alongside textbooks and do, do they complement or they, do they replace or are they an extra after, after you've done the questions? Um, and it, it differs for, for different problems. But I'm thinking that, uh, just to, to, to mention a couple of my favourites, um, if you do some work on statistics and you want children to sort of rehearse what they know about modes, means, medians, ranges, for example, then you're going to have to tell them what the definition of the mode and the median and the mean are and so on. But once you've told them that, we've got a couple of problems. One's called M, M, and M, where students are told, uh, are asked to find uh, five numbers where, I I can't remember exactly what it is, perhaps something like the mean is three, the mode is three, and the median is four or something, Um, and... There are more than five possibilities, but fewer than 15 possibilities. And the challenge is to find all the possible combinations where you're using whole numbers. Um, Another problem that we have is called unequal averages, which I remember slightly better. Um, So in unequal averages, you get given five numbers. Uh, And I think in the example, uh, in the problem, the numbers are 2, 5, 5, 6 and 7. And what's special about them is that the mean, the mode, the median and the range are all the same. So, for 2, 5, 5, 6 and 7, the mean, the mode, the median and the range are all 5. Yes. Uh, And the question is, can you find other combinations of 5 numbers that give you a mean, mode, median and range which all say... They don't have to be equal to 5. So, for example, 4, 8, 8, 8 and 12 have got A mean, mode, median, and range of 8. And all of a sudden, you're asking, uh, uh, and I've had students come up to the board and fill, you know, just cover the board with different possibilities, including algebraic expressions of the form x, X 2x, 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 3x. And and, And once you've done that, you can be then perhaps asking, well, can you give me five numbers where the mean is greater than the mode and the mode is greater than the median? or the mode is greater than the median, the median is greater than... You know, there are six different possible combinations. And the lovely thing about that is that some are possible and some are impossible if you've only got five numbers. And it seems to me, once you've done those two problems, you've sort of covered everything that you need. You know, you possibly can... Do that instead of some textbook uh, yes. questions, which are sort of much less engaging, it seems to me. We, we haven't talked about the word engaging, um, and I'm really glad that we haven't, you, you've never mentioned the word puzzle because sometimes <laughs> um, it, it I've, rich...
0: met, I, I've met Alison before, so I've got to be careful. <laughs> <about that. laughs> yeah, we do, I mean, I
2: mean we, we do think that our problems are sometimes slightly puzzling, uh, and so people don't think about them, but the. Uh, worry about the word puzzle is that sometimes it feels like, oh, there is a trick to cracking a puzzle. And either you know the trick and you sit there feeling rather pleased with yourself um, and um, uh, or or you don't know what the trick is and you you sort of don't have a way of making any progress. So puzzle is not the way that we like describing our problems because we like having problems where you're encouraged to get paper and pencil and try some things out and test ideas and so on. So with unequal averages, you you start seeing some numbers on the page and you just try and figure out... um, And it's very easy if you want the mode and the median to be the same and then you start tweaking them to make sure your range is the same and then you do a bit of tweaking to get the mean to be the same. So, but... I mean, eventually you may find faster, you know, some strategies that allow you to do this quite quickly. But... You don't need a trick in order to be able to come up with, with five numbers to do this. Um, but we think it's an engaging task because it's something that students can understand. Uses what they've just learned. And every time they, they, they've they got a combination of five, it feels like, you know, they feel like punching the air. Yeah, I've got one. I'm going to go and write it up on the board. That kind of sense of, yes, I, I, you know, I've got another one. I've cracked it. Um, so we talk about engaging
0: tasks rather than sort of puzzles anyway i feel that i've i've
2: i've, I've gone on uh
0: no that, that's, that's super useful that Charlie and it, it teases up nicely actually for, for the next thing I just wanted to talk to you about and that is that is some of these Enrich myths and we, we've touched upon a few but I wanted this to kind of be a, a kind of standalone section within the interview where we, we, we tackle head on some of the things that I've heard and perhaps some of the things that you've heard teachers say and, and just what your responses are about them so the first one has, has come up a little bit in our discussion but I always hear this people say Enrich activities only work with top set students uh, what, what do you say to that
1: i think there are some enrich activities that i would only do with the top set and there are some that i would do with any um, we do have the star rating on the problems so every problem that we write we give it a stage which is basically just a key stage from one to five and then a star rating Uh, difficulty level one two or three and when we're deciding how to tag a particular problem we try to make it so that if a problem has one star it means that we think that the students at that stage the vast majority of them are going to be able to make some progress on this task so if it's a, a low threshold high ceiling task then we'll give it a one star because we want everybody to have a chance to have a go at that. That If we give a problem two stars, it's just to indicate to teachers this might not be appropriate for your less confident problem solvers. And that might be to do with what sets students in. It, it, it might not be. Uh, I think the problem of maths anxiety in top sets is something that uh, you've, you've touched on in in previous discussions uh, Craig yes. but the 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 idea that that the, the two star problems are perhaps a, a little bit harder to get started on and it may be that a one star problem and a two star problem can both end up doing very very similar maths af- after you've you've worked on them for a bit but it's just that that entry level and then the three star problems we reserve that for these are the problems that you give to those really, really keen students who really want a challenge to get their teeth into. And I suppose the three star problems are there to address the point that I made earlier that every child needs to have the experience of struggling. So the three star problems is what I could have done with being given when I was in year eight or year nine, so that by the time I got to university, I had strategies for dealing with the internal feelings you have when you get stuck.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I think be. it's true. I think it's true to say that in the early days, a lot of the problems would have been three-star problems, um, because I think the target audience for Enrich were those students who perhaps were a little bit bored in school, who weren't being challenged mm-hmm. sufficiently, who perhaps weren't being Sufficiently well prepared for the kind of challenges that they would meet if they chose to study maths at university. But, and there wasn't a star rating in those days, I don't think. Uh, so, But more recently, Alison and I are very, very keen to publish as many one star and two star problems as possible. And, and I think we, we possibly publish many more one star and two star problems now than we did publish three star problems. Um, We're trying to, we're keen for teachers to think of Enrich as something that offers them resources for all their students, or for the majority of their students. Uh, And We used to talk years ago about how we would like Enrich to be the first port of call for teachers who are looking for engaging resources.
1: Yeah, when we uh, put together a, a feature, so so that I mean that's another change that I should have mentioned when we were talking about how Enrich is, has changed. We used to have a monthly edition of Enrich and now we have half termly features. Uh so every half term we select what, about half a dozen or so problems and articles to, to go with them. And those are the problems that are live and we invite students to submit solutions to them. And when we're considering the balance of problems to put in a feature, we make sure that there are some one star problems, maybe a couple of two star problems. And we don't always include a three star problem in every feature. There'll usually be links to three star problems, but... We want to make sure that there is something in every feature for everyone to have a go at. And two other things that we've been doing recently to try and uh, better support this idea that you can do Enrich activities with any students. We did some work last year with uh, some teachers who are very interested in GCSE resets and whether you could use rich tasks with that, which is a notoriously challenging group of students uh, to teach, because they've failed their GCSE, yes. they are doing it because they have to get this this grade, and it's often a very very limited amount of timetabled time and an awful lot to get through. And a local teacher shared with us the work that she'd been doing. Taking primary problems on Enrich, key stage two problems that were focusing on some skills, uh, lots of stuff on fractions was in there, ratio and proportion. And she'd adapted the tasks so that they didn't look like work that you would give a primary school student. And her students were really, really engaged with it and it, they were making connections that they'd never met before. And so, with that in mind, we've looked back at ways that we can. Take existing Key Stage 2 problems and rewrite them so that they're appropriate for a GCSE resit audience. The other thing that we're, we're trying really hard to do is to have problems that span that sort of Key Stage 2 3 transition so that primary teachers can look ahead to see. What students are going to be doing at secondary with a particular idea, and so that secondary students can look back and, and make the connections with primary. And that gives a real opportunity for understanding that you can do this sort of activity with any age and any prior attainment level.
0: That's fa- very interesting. That. Uh, yeah, the, the GCSE Reset one is, is is massive. So something to tackle that is, uh, yeah, that, that sounds absolutely a brilliant idea. Um, can can I, I just add oh, one yeah, please, thing please, to John. what Alison's
2: been saying? Um, another development is um, we've been working with um, UKMT for many years. And UKMT have historically published the problems that appeared in their challenges sort of in yearbooks and the like. And we thought it'd be really nice to have them organized according to topics. So they, for years, have let us publish their problems as uh, as short weekly problems. And so we had an enormous collection um, uh, on, on the site, but they weren't organized anyway. So recently, over the last, uh, um, I don't know, uh, 12 months or so, perhaps a little bit more now, uh, we've... Um, We've tagged them all according to topic headings and we're slowly in the process of turning them into sort of downloadable, printable sheets so that teachers can use them in their classroom or they can use them for homework, children can use them for revision. (coughs) And in the ideal world, what we're hoping we'll have is for every topic, there would be three sheets, at least three sheets, which will be of one-star problems a couple of sheets which will have two-star problems and perhaps only one sheet which will have three-star problems. To acknowledge that uh, we are trying to cater for as wide uh, a group of students as possible. This is not a site just for the highest attaining students. Um, So um, teachers have been giving us some feedback on this and are really excited that we've got both the sort of traditional enriched problems and these collections of shorter problems which require the the curriculum knowledge but are often asked in a way that is slightly more thought provoking and requires students to really understand what they're doing if they're gonna answer it correctly
0: got it superb and um, I want to come in with the for me what is the the big myth actually and I'm, I'm I've been fa- I've been looking forward to asking you both this question and um, so I'm just going to sit back after I've asked this and that's the, um, the issue of fluency and I hear this a lot and I'm going to confess I've thought this a lot myself that the students don't get the chance to develop fluency and key skills whilst they're doing the enrich activity so I'm a great believer that kids need the practice of these key skills to develop automaticity or fluency or whatever you want to call it and I, I think sometimes teachers feel that there's just not that opportunity within these we're uh, within some of the enrich activities so my first question is is that a feeling that that you've had or a concern that you've had and and, and what's what's been your response to it
1: that's a it is it is a good question it's something that we have been asked many times uh, we're very excited to publish a feature based on some discussions that we had. I'm just going to look up, uh, I've got the, the website in front of me sure. um, to try and remember what it was that we, we called the feature, but it was to do with purposeful practice. It Yes. So mathematical attitudes and purposeful practice, which came out of discussions with Colin Foster, who wrote an article um, for us all about this, this idea of his mathematical attitudes and, he let us borrow a couple of them to, to write up for the site. And we went back through our archives and found other problems that we thought addressed this. Uh, so we'll, we'll stick a link to that particular article into the uh, the show notes, if, if that's okay. Yeah, definitely. So I think it'd be very useful for, for people to to read what Colin has, has to say. Uh, I think the reason that we wanted to collaborate with Colin on that was because he seemed to be saying much better than us something that we've been trying to say for quite some time which is that yes students have to develop fluency but they can do that as a consequence of working on a a rich task rather than in preparation for working on a rich task so uh some of my favorite problems for this Uh, developing fluency whilst working on on something something bigger um excuse me Uh, we've got a a problem called cyclic quadrilaterals uh which it's one of these ones that if we categorized according to whether it's about an introduction to a topic or consolidation um (coughs) excuse me Uh, it it does it does lots of different things and can be used in lots of different ways it's definitely one of the ones where if we use it in a workshop with teachers they're going to go away and do it with multiple classes over the course of the, the next week because you start off drawing triangles on a nine dot circle and working out the angles and eventually You get to the point of discovering uh, what happens with opposite angles in a cyclic quadrilateral and then you prove it. But along the way, you have to solve so many angle problems. You have to use angles in a triangle, angles on a straight line, angles around a point. All of these things that students need to practice. And you can choose to give it as a, an activity without using a calculator, if you wish. And then they're practicing factors of 360 and you know their division and uh, their, their mental arithmetic. Or alternatively, you say, OK, you can use a calculator for this because what I'm interested in you doing is working out the angles. And I don't want the uh, mental arithmetic part of it to get in the way. So it's, a, it's an activity where... They are doing the practice, but they are doing it for a purpose. I think Charlie is uh, busily writing a list next to me. So, <laughs> so he, he might be taking you through his uh, top 300 resources that uh, allow you to do fluency uh, as well as uh, rich task.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, when I talked about MM&M and uh, unequal averages, that was an example of a task that requires students to practice working out means, modes and medians while at the same time having a, another aim in mind yes. um, I see, do you remember Aidan Harrington um, mm-hmm. talking about the film The Karate Kid and the boy who wants to learn, goes to the master and the master has him painting his garden fence and the boy is very upset about this and once a garden fence is painted he gets him uh, washing and polishing his car and again the boy is very upset and and the point is that he's developing the movements and the muscles that are going to be required for the for, for when he does get you know when he gets into a fight or when he does the karate and uh, and so the, the uh, cleaning the window or the polishing the car has a sort of circular movement, and I think it's similar to the kind of movement that he might have to do. And he doesn't realize that what he's doing is preparing himself and preparing the muscles. Uh, so I think what Colin Foster's talking about is getting children engaged by giving them sort of a reason for doing so, sort of a reason for working out. Angles, or adding fractions, or uh, working out means, modes, and medians, but it's not it's not just about can you work out uh, the answer to the you know here are five numbers can you work out their mean, mode, and median? Um, so I've started writing problem. Pair uh, uh, products comes to mind as one of our uh, our problems. Uh, um, that could be used at stage four on algebra. We've got a problem that Paul Andrews introduced to me. Uh, introduced to me called isosceles triangles. You're given the area of the triangle. You're told that one of the points has got to be has got to have coordinates 20, 20. You're told that all the coord the three coordinates of the vertices are all whole numbers, and you're asked to work out how many different possibilities there are. So you're thinking about area of of triangles. You need to know about isosceles. You need to be able to picture what happens when you rotate and reflect uh, triangles. You need to perhaps know something about factors. Uh, You're given... Yeah, I didn't mention... You're you're told that the area is nine square centimetres. There are problems like dozens. There's got a lovely interactivity that Alison's developed. Um, I, I think the best thing for us to do is to send you links to these problems then in in the notes from this podcast uh, perhaps if uh, if you add the links then people can go and see for themselves what the problems are otherwise we could spend the rest of <laughs> our time together describing half a dozen of our favorite problems okay nice. lis-
1: listeners you all have to pause now and uh, go and explore some of those problems mm-hmm. then come back and listen to the rest
0: <laughs> that sounds like a good plan because um now I'm, I'm glad we talked about this because I, I had colin on on the show and it's one of my favorite uh favorite interviews um i've ever done and we we, we spoke for about two hours about mathematical attitudes and and the principles of purposeful practice because the mistake i've made for for years is i i thought there was two types of activities there was your kind of routine practice problems the traditionally on a, on a worksheet or a textbook exercise and then there was your rich problem solving investigation and so on problems but for me the work that colin's done has shown that there is there is a, a special and i think they are special a special type of activity that can do both that can help develop this fluency but in i mean engaging is one of those phrases that has lots of different kind of connotations but i, I think it's engaging in 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 the right sense here kids feel they there is a, a wider purpose so the kind of i've seen kids just like in the flow and w- without knowing it 20 minutes later they've they've you know added together 50 pairs of fractions and never moaned about it once because it is part of a wider purpose and yeah that, for me that that's the real strength of those activities where you can develop that fluency as part of a wider uh, wider thing if if that makes sense
1: yeah i think it also um addresses another very common uh objection that we hear about why I can't use Enriched Tasks in my classroom, uh, which is the the time thing. So uh, Charlie mentioned isosceles triangles where students are thinking about area, but they're also thinking about coordinates. They're thinking about symmetry and they're also doing some problem solving. So if you choose a rich task, as the medium for doing some fluency practice it means that the students are doing a lot more than just the fluency so that should hopefully mean that they're making connections between different parts of the curriculum that they are seeing mathematics as, as a whole rather than just lots of isolated chunks and that they're, they're developing skills other than computational skills uh they're, they're thinking about some of the, the the wider the wider ideas in mathematics so if you've got a lot of content to cover and you choose a task that is bringing together different parts of what it is that you need to teach then it's actually buying you some time
0: Oh, you're right. You're right, and I think it's it's even more than that. And like I've been looking off on this podcast to interview professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, and they spoke about spacing and interleaving, and it, it's, it's inherently got that built into it, right? Because you are covering you know four or five topics for the price of one, which means they're going to be kids are being forced to retrieve procedures and knowledge from long term memory and all that. It's it's ticking all the boxes. I know. I, I fully agree. And I'm going to say something now at this point. So I'm, I'm just looking here. We've, we've got about kind of fifteen minutes left. I'm I'm going to make a confession here and on this podcast uh, over the years um i i come across terribly because i just admit all my mistakes and stuff but there's there's one i've been holding back and i feel that now's the time to come out with it and i'm hoping that you two can kind of relate to this and i'm I'm hoping that you can you can help here because a mistake i've made and i tend to make this more with in less structured kind of more open-ended activities like enrich activities than i would in a more kind of direct instruction more structured lesson is that afterwards i'll tend to judge the success of the lesson on how far the furthest or highest performing student has got if that makes sense so if we Mm -hmm. go back to to you Alison, if we we think about the lesson you described at the start i could imagine if i taught a younger version of you i would go into the staff room afterwards and i would say you'd not believe how far Alison got with this she'd managed to prove geometric sequences and i've done this with my year 11s I, i come out of a lesson and i talk about you won't believe how far josie got with this she did this this and this is and of course that's terrible, right? Because whilst that's great, what about the other kind of 29 students in the class? So my question is, is this something that you've kind of come up against the, the fact with these less structured activities that the focus tends to be more on the success of the kids who get furthest? And if that is something you've come up against, is is there any way we can kind of mitigate against that or kind of build in things as teachers that we, we make sure that we take care of the needs of, of more students, if that makes sense?
1: So now about workshops that I did quite recently and I think it was for some sixth form students and I'd chosen a task I think it was probably marbles in a box which is uh, about how many different lines you can make in a three-dimensional knots and crosses game um, and the purpose of the lesson or then the workshop was to do some problem solving and to think about the the problem solving skills. So I didn't have to worry about any curriculum pressures and students were all working on the problem. And different people had got to different places by the time we were coming to the end. And uh, it, it was going to be time to, to wrap things up. So. I chose to wrap up the activity by having listened in on all the conversations as they were working on the task. I started with the students who, in some sense, hadn't got the furthest, and I got them to talk through what it was they'd noticed and what it was that they'd done. And then I went to the next group that had done something very similar, but then had taken it a little bit further. And I asked them what they'd done next. So we ended up going around the room and telling the story of what they'd worked on uh, over the course of this session. And so the the last group who'd got on and you know come up with a general formula for everything were really excited to explain to everybody else what their general formula of everything was. But all of the other students along the way had also been excited to talk about what they discovered. And yes. I, I was I was saying things to them, like, tell tell everybody that thing that you told me that you got really excited about. And I hope everybody left that workshop. Feeling some ownership of the contribution that they'd made to that discussion, but also being able to look at the. The, the next table and say, oh, they got a little bit further. If I was doing something like this again, yes. what can I learn from what they've done in order to to move my thinking on? And I think that's kind of like the attitude we have when we're writing up the solutions that are submitted to problems on the site uh, because we, we get solutions all sorts of things. The canonical example that that we tell everybody about is the problem temperature, which invites students to find a temperature which is the same whether you measure it in both Celsius or Fahrenheit. And some students did it by just taking some numbers in in each sequence and, and moving down until the sequence matched up with one them. Some students did it graphically, some students did it algebraically. So when we wrote up the solution from the side, the simplest ways of addressing it and thinking about it, we wrote up first. And then as you read down the solution, it gradually gets more and more sophisticated mathematics. And we hope that the students who did it using a sort of trial and improvement kind of method will have come back to look at their solution on the enrich site and be really pleased with their self that their solution has been published but also to read what other yes. students did and to say well if i did this problem again yeah actually i would stick with my way i liked my way of doing it or perhaps oh yes i think I wish I'd done it that way. That way is really cool. And not in a sort of shaming way of, oh, I I must be a, a, a bit slow because I, I did it the, the easy way and I should have done it. I should have found this clever trick to the puzzle. That's not what we're promoting in the solutions at all. We're just, we're trying to, to showcase that for any mathematical problem, there's usually multiple ways of, of solving it. And that, Sometimes, by looking at somebody else's solution to something, you can learn quite a lot about problem solving that then might help you if you see something like that again.
0: That's really interesting. I, I like that. I, I like the fact that I'm, I'm going to reflect on. So of a takeaway at the end of each each interview. Um, I'm going to reflect on that. Kind of telling a story, being the kind of end of one of these activities. The story of the activity. The story of how the thinking takes place. I, I really like that, Alison. That's that's lovely. That. If um, I can I just add yeah, something to what I said. Please, Charlie. Um,
2: a couple of times you've talked about enriched problems being sort of open ended and less structured. Yes. And. I suppose I'd quite like to challenge that of being <laughs> the case for the majority of enriched problems. I think we've got much more in common with the kind of problems that Colin Foster has been publishing, and many of the problems that, say, have come out in Dave Hewitt and Tom Franken's most recent ATM publication. Yes. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it practicing it be, mathematics. Practicing Mathematics, yes. Yeah. I mean, they've got a gorgeous problem there, which is made up with um, just a sum um so
0: uh oh is it the one one one, one the one one three, one five seven three. nine. yeah it's my favorite from the whole book that Charlie. well Absolutely. i
2: i told them that it was my favorite and they were shocked <laughs> and tom said to, to me whoa I, um, I i hardly did i uh, yes yeah, are you are you sure <laughs> but <laughs> did this, so um i mean for the listeners. Um, You imagine having in the units column, 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. In the tens column, 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. And in the hundreds column, 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. And the idea is that if you were to sort of wipe out some of those numbers and add what you've got left, you're meant to get 1,111. And the question is, what's, what's the maximum number of those digits that you could rub out? So, um uh, and still get a thousand one hundred eleven. What's the minimum number that you could rub out and still get a thousand? And could you rub out everything in between? Uh, they write their questions slightly differently, but that's basically what. And it's lovely because you can rub out ten of the numbers and still get it, and you can rub out just five of the numbers and still get the answer. And there is, and there are possibilities for everything in between, and sometimes there's more than one possibility. Um, so this is quite a structured problem. I find it completely engaging. I mean, I know how to add, and even you know, I've got lots of things that I could be doing with my time, but I I really <laughs> got <laughs> I, I, um, I got drawn in by by this kind of problem. And I think when Alison and I write our, our teachers' resources in our, the possible approach uh, for working on the problem, I think we've been really careful about sort of crafting the problem in such a way that teachers can imagine how they could use it and how they might make it as accessible as possible to the majority of the class so that it can be considered a low-threshold problem that everybody can make a start on. But then, at stages in the lesson, what the questions might be that might prompt students to further mathematical thinking, mathematical work, and so on. Um, So we might suggest... Times when it might be possible to bring people together, what the purpose of bringing them together will be, but uh, also sort of possible extension questions that some students might 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 go on to do. Um, so I, 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 we've recently been looking at old problems, and it's sort of all clear to me that most of them are open ended or less. I mean that most of them are just quite difficult. <laughs> we, we, yes, yes. Yeah. But I think if if you look at the problems that that we've been writing more recently, um, it's not the open-ended, less structured. I mean, we aren't quite taken by this idea of giving students a, a chance to sort of explore so that they notice patterns and so they might conjecture. But it's often in quite a structured environment. And then follow-up questions that, might lead to generalisations and explanations and, and proofs along the tilted squares kind of variety. Um, but they, they tend to be reasonably structured, uh, uh, both in the problem and in the teachers' resources. We, we've recently been doing some work with Claire Lee and Sue Johnston Wilder on, on resilience. And, uh, and again, they've been also encouraging us to think about where students are at when they arrive at a problem or when they arrive at the lesson where they may already be anxious about mathematics and and how do we ease them in and what kind of scaffolding do we offer students so that they don't give up as soon as they come across problems. So it, it's quite a different mindset at Enrich to perhaps the one that was... Uh, you know the original mindset, which which had a different audience and different aims and, uh, and objectives at the time.
0: Got it fantastic um, again just thinking that you're going to be booted out of your room in kind of five five or seven minutes time So just I, 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 think, I think we've
2: got the room booked till So I think I think. oh
0: okay I'll, I think, I'll relax I'll squeeze in a couple no, of people. No, no, that's okay fantastic um, I wanted to ask you this as well before we dig into something deep that again could, could take us till the end of the interview do you have a view on the kind of optimal blend or frequency that, that teachers you'd advise them to be using enrich activities is it the case of every lesson a couple of times a week once a once a half
1: term, what have you found out? Kind of worked best. Are there any guidelines you can offer? I mean, I try and be very pragmatic. Uh, I want teachers to be using lots and lots of enriched tasks, but I'm aware of the the challenges and, and barriers that they face. I, I might have been out of the classroom for nearly ten years now, but I have enough uh, friends who are still. Uh, practicing teachers who keep me very, very firmly grounded uh, to the extent that one of my friends uh, used to email me if it was the first of the month and she didn't like the new resources that, that I published <laughs> and said, "This is all very well, but uh, how am I going to use this with my bottom set year eights? Last thing on a, a Wednesday afternoon." Um, so, I would like teachers in general to do more rich tasks than they currently do and I would like to help them to do that by signposting them to tasks that they can fairly easily drop in without it causing too much disruption to what they do I want to get them hooked on using our site I want their students to see the enrich site and go oh we're doing an enrich lesson today and to get really excited about it um but i know that when you first start trying to teach in this way it can be very very difficult to learn the the slightly different skills that you might need as a teacher um so that's why we write the teacher's notes it's why we uh, collaborate with people on articles about how to do it it's why we offer professional development so that even if you only did one uh, enriched task every half term then that's one rich enriched task every half term and then next year you'll do that enriched task again because it went brilliantly and the students got a lot out of it but then you put up it, put in another one because you already know that first task. So you can slot in another one uh, into your planning. And then by the time you've been uh, teaching uh, for a decade, you're doing most of your lessons from Enrich and, and, and that's great.
0: See, this is interesting, Alison. So would it uh, it? I don't know if this is going to come out right or right or not. But are these the kind of activities that? So, so, so take someone like me who, um, over the years, I've gone over the last kind of two or three years, I've gone gone und, undergone a bit of a transformation in how I approach teaching, and now I'm I'm much more of the view that I, I structure my lessons much tighter. I'm um, I do a lot more di- my own version of direct or explicit instruction. But for me, enrich activities, in particular, the ones that are geared towards the more purposeful practice have a definite place um after possibly after i've done that instruction to get kids practicing in a more engaging way or as you've mentioned to introduce a concept to kids that then i may then explicitly teach afterwards just to make sure everything's everything's sorted but do you see enrich activities fitting in alongside that mode of teaching or, or or is it not compatible is there is there another approach to teaching that's more compatible to using enrich activities I, I don't know if that makes sense or not
1: that's a that is a really big question uh, something that i try very hard never to do is criticize the way that teachers choose to teach yes because we are very lucky in this country that we do have a, a lot of freedom we're, we're told this is what the students have to know but it's it's up to you how you do it and and depending on what school you're in and what the culture of the department is in teachers can have quite a lot of of freedom about making those decisions for themselves and as part of treating teachers as professionals i kind of feel that it's part of my job to just show here is a way that you might teach here is the reasons why I think it might be quite good for you to teach in this way uh, I know that we're going to send you a link to our page that Charlie and I have written together which is called what we think and why we think it and it's basically uh it's like a shorter version of your book really Greg because it's it's uh, what's influenced the ways that we write uh enriched tasks and what we are drawing on uh what our, what our philosophy of teaching is, I suppose. Um, so I don't want to set up conflicts that aren't really there. And I don't want to get involved in any sort of, this is the one true way, because I don't think there is a, a one true way. And I think trying to make somebody teach in a style that doesn't come naturally to them is not going to do anybody any favours. And what I would rather see Is teachers who have the support that they need to try new things out Um, teachers who are supported in reading different kinds of research and considering how that research applies in their own unique situation to be trusted to know their students and know what might work to think about what it means to teach mathematics and and to have some space to do that and for me part of teaching mathematics is for students to understand what mathematics is and a big part of mathematics for me is about generalization and proof so i couldn't teach maths in a way that didn't allow the students in my care to experience conjecturing and generalizing and explaining and justifying and proving because in my mind they wouldn't be learning mathematics they would be learning procedures for adding fractions or for multiplying out brackets but what they would be doing would be the tools that you need in order to do mathematics not the mathematics itself i don't know if uh, charlie wants to come in on this because well, this is uh, quite
2: a yeah, difficult john mason i think said at a conference which is a lesson in which there is no generalizing is not a mathematics lesson
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting isn't it and um, again i'm i'm still i'm, I'm trying to find my try, trying to hone in on exactly what what my viewpoint um is on this what let me just ask the question in, in a slightly different way or take a slightly different aspect of it because i think this is it's important because it's i've never known so i've been teaching 13 years now um and i've never known people more kind of engaged in the debate as they have been over the last kind of two two years uh 12 months and i think twitter plays a, a big role in that and it can get very heated and <laughs> and stuff like that but i think there's there's some useful points to draw out of it and it was all kicking off this morning. So we're recording this at the, the end of April. Um, and I was just on Twitter and I saw Joe Bowler had, had put a put a tweet out that has, has gone viral. People are not happy about it, saying that a lot of um, education in the UK is based on memorization of facts and, and drills. And obviously, Joe is 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 not a big fan of this at all. But for me something like memorization and and drills and um low stakes quizzes things that are not kind of rich mathematics would have an essential part to play in a child's education just just to get some of these things automated so that they can then access the generalization the proof and so on that are so 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 important And I just think that there's a danger sometimes. that We can go too far both ways. It will be terrible for a child to never experience activities like the ones that that, that are on your site. But at the same time, I don't think children can get as much out of them if they don't have that solid foundation of knowledge that sometimes can only come through rote memorization. And you can do it in a more interesting way, but memorization and and explicitly taught procedures. Would you agree with that at all?
1: I think there's a problem with... Uh, linking what it means to be successful in mathematics to how good your memory is.
0: Yes, Um, I agree with that.
1: So I want students to want to be fluent because they know that it will help them to do mathematics. I don't want them to see fluency as being the end goal The fluency is the means that allows you to be quicker, perhaps, or uh, to to allow you to to spot the generalizations. And yes, I want students to have the knowledge that they need in order to access the, the, the problems. But... It doesn't need to be this this false dichotomy that people set up which means that I don't participate in math Twitter uh, (laughs) nearly as much as perhaps I should simply because I see some of the conversations that go on and I think actually I need to protect my own well-being here and not get involved with some of the hostility that happens and actually the hostility makes me very angry because you then get the situation where someone Fairly early on in their career, perhaps, who might be asking for opinions and support suddenly finds that there is this this entrenched war going on, uh, which can be extremely off putting. Take, for example, the recent um, whether people should uh, memorize their times tables up to 12 times 12. Or not, which everybody is weighed in with an opinion on. <laughs> I don't think that the two camps are particularly far apart on this. I think pretty much everybody agrees that it is easier to do large chunks of maths if you have those facts at your fingertips. The conflict seems to be about. Going from it's easier to do maths if you have these facts at your fingertips to therefore everybody must spend the first 10 years of their life memorising maths facts before they're allowed to do any maths. And that's that's a characterisation of one of the positions.
0: Yeah, I think you're right.
1: And people end up arguing with with that caricature rather than agreeing on the common ground that yes, maths is a lot easier if I don't have to stop and think that 6.8s are 48. But if I do have to stop and think that 6.8s are 48, that doesn't mean that I'm not doing maths. And hopefully, I will realise, actually, I'd be able to do more maths if I knew what 6.8s was without having to stop and count on my fingers. But
2: also, if I don't know what 6.8s are 48, I do want to have some strategies that enable me to work out six 6.8s very, very quickly, so I can know that ten-eighths are eighty, therefore five-eighths are forty, so six-eighths is forty plus another eight, so I can get to forty-eight very quickly. So, yes, it is, life becomes much easier when, I can imagine factorising, and if I don't know that six-eighths are forty-eight, struggling here, but I also want to be able, there are examples (laughs) of people who memorise things, but then they 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 misremember and they remember things incorrectly and you know we, we've had examples of MPs being asked well, seven eight or
0: 54 <laughs> uh,
1: no 56
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah i i think you're right and no and thank you for just for addressing that one because again it's it's one of those things that can, can get out of hand and stuff and I, I, again i I've, I've got my viewpoints that um yeah I I I certainly will never stop using enrich activities and I think for me it's come down to that I've, I've and I and again you you may not agree with this but and it may have been a, just a mistake I was using with, with with some of the activities but I've just seen students not get as much out of them as I feel they could have done because their kind of baseline knowledge wasn't where it needed to be when I gave them the activity and that may have been a, a poor formative assessment strategy on my, my part or it may just have been that I've seen this activity because this is how I used to plan lessons I would see an activity that was brilliant and I would just give it to my kids without mm-hmm. thinking is this the most suitable thing for my students and I think that that's just made me take a little step back and think, no, actually, this is a brilliant activity, but I've got to make sure my students are in a position to benefit and enjoy it as much as possible, if that makes sense. I
1: mean, I, I think one one thing that can be very successful is to start off an activity and then come to the point where because you are constantly assessing your students over the course of of the lesson you realize that there is one of these gaps and if that gap was filled then it was going to be able to to help that that student's appreciation of the task so you intervene at that point and sometimes that might be a a whole class intervention that you say okay guys I, i need you all to stop because loads of you are getting stuck because you really want to be able to sketch a graph of this but it's a long time since we've done any graph sketching so we're just going to do a quick recap of how to do that before we go back and and so you're mixing the two different types of teaching you're doing a bit of your direct instruction at that point because the situation has has provided a a need for it and it might be that it's not the whole class that needs that intervention so you you work with a section of the students or you've got the students sitting together so that they are helping each other with that that particular bit i think i think there are there are so many innovative ways that you can use th- th- these sorts of tasks and it just i it feels like there, there's missed opportunities if these i suppose arguments about what the one true way is get in the way and 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 cards on the table i don't think there is a one true way of teaching mathematics i think that in any particular situation there's the best that you can do at that point with the knowledge and the resources you have available to you and i think supporting teachers to be able to do that feels like quite a, a good thing to be working on
2: that sounds good oh sorry
1: go on charlie
2: um, just to go back to um, uh, Tilted Squares that Alison talked about earlier, uh, um, we talk about it quite a lot because there is a video of the lesson on, on the site so that people can go and see it. But a lot of the comments that we've had about that lesson is how long we spent at the very beginning of the lesson on making sure that the children knew how to work out the areas of these Tilted Squares. Um there was quite a lot of disagreement about the area of the original square that was drawn and there was quite a lot of discussion about it. And it, we sort of felt that until that had been resolved, and it wasn't us resolving it, but it was the students sort of being clear about what, what, was the, what was the correct way forward, that they couldn't then make progress on the problem. And once we got over that hurdle, then the rest of the lessons sort of went quite fast. But we had to lay those foundations, so it's it goes back to you saying, oh, no, this looks like a fantastic problem, give it to the students, but if you haven't laid the groundwork, uh, yes. the then the problems might arise that perhaps were unexpected. So, yes, so the comment we've had is, goodness, um, surprise that it's that, that we let the beginning take quite as long as, as it does. Um, I seem to remember Dave Hewitt talking quite a lot about how important and making sure that everybody is sort of on board before you then uh, are ready to move on
0: that makes that makes perfect sense um very very final thing from me and and if you get booted out i'm going to ask you one last question and then um i was going to ask you you your big three but if you get booted out um, you can just send me links to big three and i'll put them in the show notes but my final Great, question Grace, is... don't worry
2: um, we've got the room booked to one but we don't we've got no idea whether anybody's booked it up. all room.
1: right okay so until somebody <laughs>
2: comes and knocks on our door it'll be okay it might That's get a little like bit to... noisy if twelve o'clock lectures finish and a lot of people start walking uh, outside right. outside the room.
0: But uh... we we can go with that. Well, as I say, one well, one last kind of question or observation from me, then I'll hand over to you for for, for your big three, and that is um, Mark McCourt put a really interesting tweet on 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 Twitter about a week or so ago, and he asked uh, just for maths teachers to respond, and the question was something like, "Do you see yourself as a mathematician?" And it was frightening the low percentage of math teachers who saw themselves as mathematicians. And and Mark he spoke about this a lot in the past. And he contrasted this to if you're um, a kind of music teacher, you probably play guitar and stuff for fun in your spare time. If um, if you are a French teacher, you probably enjoy going to France and speaking the language and, and speaking to other French people. But there's a worryingly low number, according to and there was a good few thousand people and um, who. who Answered this. So it's not the biggest sample ever. But there was a worryingly low number of math teachers who actually considered themselves mathematicians and would kind of participate in recreational mathematics outside of what they had to do in school. So my question is to you is is this something that you've seen as a problem? And, and can Enrich help in some way here? Would you would you advise, for example, that teachers once a week get involved and and do a problem and is there potential for kind of like a a teacher's problem to be working on or, or almost some kind of professional development aside from teaching maths just to get teachers doing mathematics themselves and experiencing what it's like to be a student in that position doing one of these activities
1: i mean i think that's the reason why whenever we do professional development the first thing that we do is to introduce a problem and sometimes it can be to show the problem and to talk about the the pedagogy but sometimes it is simply to put teachers in the position of working on some mathematics doing some maths problems and thinking of themselves as mathematicians i suppose
2: well and the last thing i do when i anything for teachers is give them a the sort of takeaway homework problem to go off and think oh, about. It. You,
1: you <laughs> always call it a, a present, don't you? I'm going to give you a wonderful <laughs> present to take away with you of a problem to think about on the train home. Which, yeah, it, it, it's lovely. I, I want maths teachers to take pleasure in doing maths.
2: I think students in schools often see their teachers talking about books that they're reading or plays that they've been to see. They see some of their PE teachers sort of coming to school on Mondays limping or bruised yes. because they've been engaging in, you know, what the games or hockey matches mm-hmm. and the like. They, they know that their music teachers often are singing or playing. Uh, I'm not sure it's so obvious to children that maths teachers... Are often working on mathematical problems hmm. themselves. Um, I did quite a lot of work with Don Stewart, and, and Don was would often. Um, so a lot of people know about Don from, from his Median Resources. Yes. Um, and um, he used to work. He, he loves working with students, and when the students notice something that. Uh, uh, he often gives them the impression that he that it's something that he's never seen before and that, that he hasn't noticed and that um, uh, and he gets really excited about it. And it sort of goes back to my A level teacher. He was, my A level teacher was the first teacher who was excited, didn't didn't wasn't embarrassed about being excited by mathematics. Uh, all my other maths teachers till then had been. Rigorous and and formal and logical and and, and that also appealed, but um, but uh, in a Don classroom he'll be uh, getting excited oh and he'll be pretending that he hasn't that the, <laughs> yes. that the, that the children see things that he's never seen before I mean uh, uh, he's, he he sometimes commented that. He, he he is slightly worried that too many children are going to go back. I mean, there are advantages. Some children will go back home and say, ah, Oh, I discovered something that my teacher didn't know about. And <laughs> yes. yeah, the student get, gets really excited. He's slightly worried that one day one of the parents is going to write to so the head teacher say, Look, it seems to me that my child is being taught by a teacher who doesn't know anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, but I think Don is trying to get that sense that there are things that are there to be discovered, and then when you do discover them, it's like scoring a goal in, in football, in hockey, you know. It, it, one can get, you know, uh, uh, gain that sense of achievement uh, that, that you get in other subjects. Uh, so we're all, we're very, uh, Alison and I are convinced that children could be getting a lot more pleasure from working at mathematical problems, where uh, which have got engaging questions, which are within reach, and which can it be, it, it doesn't feel like it, it's all a magic uh, bag of tricks, which goes back to sort of Richard Skemp and instrumental understanding, uh, and that it doesn't require the teacher to always tell you everything. Um, Alison mentioned that we've got a page on the website called What We Think and Why We Think It. And one of the articles that we've posted there is by Alan Wigley, who writes about models for teaching mathematics. And he talks about the path-smoothing model where basically you're shown some worked examples, you're shown what to do, you're warned about everything that might go wrong and where you've got to sort of adjust. Uh, But basically it's that being taken by hand and never tripping up and uh, taken through uh, and if you follow the instructions carefully um, life, life would be straightforward um, and he suggests that there's some problems with that uh, uh, with that model and suggests an alternative model which he calls a challenging model where students are, are given problems to go off and think about and uh, uh, Kenneth Rothen has written about uh, uh, an exploratory approach approach to teaching where he talks about sort of exploration and then codification and then consolidation so that's, so Alan Whitley's talking about that sense of giving children a chance to explore the codification is what Alison was talking about when she uh, having wandered around the classroom, got a sense of what students are doing and thinking and saying, she then brings the class together and gets students to share their insights, their strategies
1: and to tell the students the bits that they need to be told, because they don't know that what they've just discovered is Pythagoras's theorem. So that's the bit that I need to remember to tell. Them.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And, and like you say,
0: there may be
2: bits where we've got a really nice, efficient way of doing something that might not have occurred to anybody, and it makes sense to explain it to to, to offer it at that stage. Um, so we're convinced that students can think mathematically and John Mason and, 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 and a couple of others wrote this book called Thinking Mathematically which I think has influenced our thinking as well, but that makes it sort of written to the conviction that we can all be thinking mathematically uh, whatever you know, it doesn't necessarily require us all to have done A-level maths and the example that, you know, you and I got excited by from Dave and Tom's book about the one, three, five, seven, nines, 7, um, all adding up to 1111 is, is, a, is a nice example of that. that you don't need to have uh, higher level maths to be able to engage in a problem that, uh, that requires quite a, a thoughtful approach.
1: I think this is also why when I'm not doing enriched stuff, I am involved with Maths Jam. because for me, Maths Jam is trying to do what I think science has been doing over the, 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 the past decade or so, making it, cool to enjoy doing science making science something that the general public can engage with not just something that's done by people wearing lab coats and maths jam is about hey doing maths is is cool It's, it's it's enjoyable it's fun and it's within the reach of anybody so I have a few teachers who come along to Maths Jam in Cambridge now and again, not because they want to get some ideas for what they want to do in their lesson, but because they want to sit down and work on some maths for themselves and talk to other people about maths and talk about problem solving and enjoy beer at the same time.
2: Yes, Gareth Malone does it for singing, Uh, Jamie Oliver does it for cooking, Brian Cox does it for science and Rich tries to do it for maths.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, that, that's that's superb. All right, to to wrap things up, it's just time for your big three, and I'll put links to these uh, in the show notes, just like there'll be links to everything else. So, what what three websites or blog posts or whatever you like would you uh, like to direct our listeners to?
1: Well, they only need to come to the Enrich site, <laughs> and that's, that's that's the the, the what, once they've come there, then they've got Um I mean, we are pretty good about linking from Enrich to other places so we will share the what we think and why we think it yes article and if people only look at one thing you know that would be a a good place to start for getting a a sense of our um, our philosophy um thinking actually about what we've just discussed about wanting a love of maths. Please do go to our website and enjoy our problems. But there are lots of other really great websites out there with interesting maths to think about and work on. And I, I guess with that in mind, I would recommend that people do check out their uh, local maths jam if they haven't already. And if you don't have a maths jam in your local area, then you can just do what I did and start one yourself. Um, <laughs> And although I might have trash talked it a little bit earlier because of the uh, um, the arguments that happen, I do find that parts of maths education, Twitter, are very, very, very good for the soul. And when people are sharing just, you know, little problems that you're busy with something and you open up Twitter and then a tweet goes past and it's got a problem in and then that's the rest of the day lost because (laughs) you're thinking about it. I know that uh, Colin Wright posted something yesterday that I was lying awake for quite a while last night thinking about. Um, But yeah, even though Twitter has got some bad sides to it, it is also a really, really amazing resource just for talking to other like-minded people.
0: Absolutely. Well, that is super. Well, I've I've kept you far too long here. But I, firstly, I just want to thank both uh, Alison and Charlie for for giving up your time. Um, it's it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, but the the biggest thanks thanks of all is just for, for your work on Enrich. It's uh, it's a wonderful website. And I one of the, one of the main things that I wanted to do with this interview was to, as I say, it's not about advertising or telling people about Enrich because everybody's heard of it. But what I wanted to do was kind of dispel some of the myths and also just what you're working on now and the direction that you're going in, because for me, it's it, it's perfect. It's reducing the barrier to entry for some of the tasks and making sure that there is kind of purposeful practice within the task in my personal opinion is is definitely the kind of d- correct direction to go in so I, I hope that if it achieves nothing else that this makes listeners dive on to enrich possibly going through the show notes of this podcast where we we've probably listed about 15 or 20 activities there's going to be more than enough for, for teachers to both do themselves and, and try with their students so thank you for your time there this morning and thank you for all the wonderful work you've done it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, both. Thank,
1: well,
2: you thank you for you inviting for, us yes yeah, we've really enjoyed it thank you
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Alison Kiddle and Charlie Gilderdale from Enrich. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. And I hope my annoying croaky and at sometimes randomly high-pitched voice didn't reduce your enjoyment too much. So, time for my takeaways, and I'll tell you what, I have flipping loads to think about and reflect on from this. So let's make a start on um what makes a good activity and specifically a good enrich activity? And the reason I want to start my reflection on this is that for years I've been kind of banging on about low barrier or low threshold high ceiling tasks. And for me that was the kind of defining characteristic of a good activity or a good mathematical um, task to give to students. But the more I think about it, the more I think that that's not enough on its own. So it's not enough that tasks have this low barrier to entry and a high ceiling it's an essential feature definitely and for for years I've spoke about the fact that if, if students don't experience immediate success in a task even no matter how small that success is You can lose a lot of students, and sure, that may be because they don't have enough resilience or grit or whatever label you want to put at it, Um, but I still think it's so important that, that they experience even the smallest bit of success in a task really, really, really early on, just to give them that boost and that belief that they can succeed. So whilst I think it's absolutely essential that good activities should be low barrier, high ceiling. And of course, the high ceiling part's really important so that kids haven't finished within about 20 seconds and sat back with nothing else to do. I think there's kind of two other components for me that now need to be part of of what makes a good activity. The second one is is regular success. So, all right, you've had that initial uh, kind of boost of success. You've got into the task. You're off and running. But if your next feeling of success doesn't come for another 25, 30, 40 minutes, then again, I think there's a danger of losing students. And of course, when we look at Dweck's work on growth mindset, there there are students out there who can just keep battling through and battling through and battling through and kind of fighting off the adversity and not giving up and enjoying the challenge. But as I'm sure we all know, there are also lots of students who've experienced really negative um, experiences of mathematics over the years. And if you've got a really great activity for them and, and you get them into it within the first kind of 30 seconds, they're off and running. But then again, they don't get that next boost for so, so long. Then I think that can be quite demoralizing as well. So as well as that low barrier and that high ceiling. I also want regular opportunities for students to experience success throughout the activity. And they again can be little small moments here and there, little little benchmarks that they reach, little discoveries that they make, things that they get right, and insights that they realize. But I think they need to be there. They need to be present at regular intervals. And the final thing, my final kind of component that what makes a good activity is the presence of purposeful practice. And this came up in this interview. It's come up tons of times on the podcast, and most specifically with Colin Foster, which is still one of my my favorite interviews I've ever done. But I need students to be practicing a key procedure throughout the activity. And again, this is where my kind of viewpoint would maybe differ from from perhaps Charlie and Alison's and perhaps quite a few listeners on here. But I've I've kind of moved away a little bit um, over the last few years from activities that don't have a specific focus, a specific focus of practicing or developing um, a key procedure or a key concept. I'm not a massive believer that we should be, and again, this is just my view, that we should be spending time kind of trying to develop generic problem solving skills. I think a lot of problem solving skills are domain specific. Your ability to solve problems in fractions may not necessarily help you as much with your ability to solve problems uh, with a question involving mean or a question involving cumulative frequency. And in the past, I think I've been guilty of thinking, right, I'm going to give students a problem to solve, let's say in the domain of fractions. And that will help them to develop the problem solving skills that will then be perfectly transferable to a problem um, in the domain of uh, cumulative frequency or, or averages or something like that. And sure, I think there are some transferable skills there, but i um, I'm not convinced it's as transferable as I once thought it was. So, so I like the activities that get students practicing a key skill or procedure or developing a concept, but in a in a really kind of focused, purposeful way that have this this opportunities for richness surrounding it, and it makes me so happy to see that these activities are becoming a, a greater focus for Enrich. And again, some of the work that Colin's done on his mathematical etudes site is, is just phenomenal. They, they have been some of my favourite lessons um, over the last six months or so, to kind of focus in on this purposeful practice. And, I, and I'll reflect again um, a little bit later in this takeaway when I talk about GCSE resets with that. So just to recap there, my kind of criteria now for what makes a good mathematical activity are low barrier high ceiling or low threshold high ceiling, opportunities for regular success, and purposeful practice built in there and i think if you if you're getting those three things going then you're on to an absolute winner and um, i guess kind of related to this and i really like this and um, that Alison and charlie talked about was that they don't particularly like or they're trying to kind of reduce emphasis on the problems and activities that can be solved using a trick and i think this is a really important thing this because I don't know about you, but I've been in some kind of workshops, uh, mathematical workshops, where I've been working on something. <laughs> I've been working really hard and struggling away with my pen and paper. And there's been someone else on my table who's sat back smugly saying, oh, I know how to do this one. I've seen this one before. And you just do it like this and it whips out some fancy algebra or something. And it's really demoralizing for for the people who are still kind of working hard on it. But it's also, it's tricky for the teacher as well, because what on earth do you do with, with that student there? He's wrapped it up after kind of 20 seconds or so. Um, and again, then then if they start, if that that student starts telling people around the class how to do it, then that, that may shift the emphasis away from what the teacher wanted the focus of the activity to be on. If, if it was a purposeful practice activity that um, the teacher wanted students adding fractions, let's say in in, in a purposeful way, and then a student's discovered that actually you you don't need to try out all these different combinations of adding fractions. If you spot the algebraic trick, you can wrap it up in in twenty seconds. Then it then then the point of the activity and then the value from the activity is is significantly reduced. So it's a tricky balance though because. Let's go back to what Charlie said when he referenced John Mason, that, that any math lesson without without generalisation isn't a good maths lesson. And whilst I think that's a little bit extreme. I, I take the point. And some of these best activities, once you've gone through this purposeful practice, it's then time to reflect and say, what have we learned from that? What can we generalise from that? And, and possibly bring in some algebra and some proof and, and generalisation that way in a formal way. But if the trick comes before kids have had opportunity to practice, then it's a a kind of a bit of a waste of time. It's not as effective as it could be. So I think that's really important. Looking for activities that can't be solved easily using a trick, but that there is some opportunity for generalization later on. And I'll be very picky with what I want in an activity here. Um, Another thing I wanted to reflect on, and I mentioned this um, in the podcast that I was going to talk about this, is when Alison said about about plenaries, that the end of a lesson a really nice thing to do is kind of tell the story of the lesson, how students have developed and solved problems throughout the lesson. It's such a simple idea, but but such a lovely one, and so 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 important. And in the past, the the, the danger I've made is to kind of go in right at the end point. So kids have been working um, on a problem um, or an activity through throughout throughout the lesson, and I've got five minutes left at the end, and and um, my emphasis there will be right. How far have we got? Let's how far? What's the furthest we've got? And let's focus my plenary on that. And the problem with that, of course, is a lot of students won't have got that far. So, you know, they might not understand what's going on in the plenary, but possibly more importantly, they won't feel a part of, of those la- that last five minutes of the lesson. And, and they won't feel like they've been a part of the lesson because they've not got as far as everybody else. They can't join in this conversation. And a great way to negate that, as Allison says, is, is, is get students to tell the story of the lesson. So as you're wandering around, students who haven't got quite as far, and make a note where they're up to and bring them in at the start of the discussion in, in the plenary. So where did you start? How far did you get? Right, okay, now I see that you, Gemma, you took it a little bit further on. Tell me about this. And and it's just great because everybody's involved, exactly as Allison says. But then also, people who didn't get quite as far in the lesson, they, they've got a kind of second opportunity to get it. Because the foundations have been laid. They've laid their own foundations. And now they can start to buy into the story and see how far other people got in it. So I thought that was really nice. <laughs> and it goes back to my confession I made. And again, I've, my reputation is in shreds these days. I've got to stop. I've got to stop confessing these kind of things. But I hear it all the time, you know, and it's, it's not just from me. It's, and it's so tempting to do. Um, in our school, we've got um, parallel classes. Our year's split into two. So you'll have two top sets, one on each side, two second sets and, and so on. And there's a bit of kind of friendly rivalry uh, between teachers of the two top sets and the two second sets and so on. Like we we work together really collaboratively, really positively. But of course, there's a bit of friendly rivalry. And it it always comes to a head um, whenever you're kind of teaching the same lesson. Say you've joint planned a lesson or it's um, something on the scheme of work. And uh, the two teachers will come out of their respective lessons. And again, I've been guilty of this so many times. And you say, oh, how did that go? And my response would be, well, oh, it's great because Josie managed to figure this bit out. And and then the the other, I won't name any names here, but somebody else, one of my colleagues may say, oh, she got that far, did she? Oh, well, OK, well, Georgia actually managed to do this. And it's kind of a bit of a competition for how far your um, your highest achieving student got throughout a task or activity. And you see this as well in, in exams, right? Whenever uh, mock exam results or PPEs, or whatever you want to call them, or end of term tests come out. Um, I always tend to look at who got the who got the highest mark, who got the highest mark in my class, and how did that compare to the highest mark in the other class? And it's terrible because <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I'm going to be completely honest here, that that Josie, a girl I talk about a, a lot in, in in my book um, and I reference it on the podcast, like. If she'd have never been to one of my lessons um, over, over in year 11, she probably would have done just as well and probably still would have been at Oxford doing maths now and so on. I had very little impact. And yet every time she did well, I used to t- take that as a sign of my wonderful teaching whenever, of course, the emphasis should have been on the rest of the students. And I'm just kind of tied into this idea of, of telling the story of the lesson in the plenary. It's going to be one thing I'm really going to focus on, not to judge the, the success of a lesson or the success of my teaching or the success of my teaching ability on the top performer in my class and it's such an obvious thing to say and I feel terrible for saying it it's so flipping obvious but hopefully some other teachers can relate to that and the final thing I just wanted to, to look back on is is how will I use Enrich going forward and um, listeners will know and readers of my book will know that I've, I've kind of really transformed my view of math teaching over the last couple of years and um, I used to use enrich activities all the time. And is it the case now that there's just simply no no place for them in my teaching? Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to say that that no, that that's not the case at all. Um, I've got a very a kind of recipe for teaching that i that i believe in and as alison says there's no there's no kind of one model that works for everybody or even every student all the time and so on and and i'm always very careful not to say this is the right way to do things but the the kind of model or the recipe that that i've developed over the last couple of years or so really really works for me and um Again, if I'm introducing a concept for the new time, uh, for the first time, it'll start with an example problem pair involving silent teacher. It will then incorporate students having their own go and I'll be using Doug Lemov's technique of show call, walking around the classroom and so on. And after that discussion then, it next will come intelligently varied practice where I will be holding everything constant and changing one thing and students will be working through and exercising on the face if it looks pretty dull. It's just got 10, 15 questions something like that but those questions have been the sequencing of them has been designed so carefully the student's attention is drawn to the thing that's changing and we can have some really really interesting discussions based on that and then after that intelligently varied practice maybe the next lesson or the next week or the next year even that's when for me purposeful practice comes into play purposeful practice and I've talked about this tons even in this episode where students are developing that fluency. They are practicing key skills, but in a context or well, not necessarily a context, but, uh, but in a way that has a wider purpose. No, I'm not talking real life maths or anything like this here. I'm talking something that, that the practice will help them solve a problem that if that there is a reason to be adding 20 fractions there is a reason to be forming and solving 30 equations that's that's higher a higher purpose than if it just appeared on on a worksheet and for me and i bang on about this in the book i've got an entire chapter on it those purposeful practice activities are, are the key to teaching because The vast majority of our time teaching isn't spent introducing something for the first time. It's spent going over something. Something that students probably haven't mastered in the past, but have a a preconception about. Perhaps they've failed at it tons of times in the past. Perhaps they just need a little bit more practice. Perhaps they need a load more practice. Perhaps they need to see it in a completely different way. And that for me is where purposeful practice comes into play. And that for me is where Enrich comes into play. I love Colin's activities, um, and he shared a lot of them, Colin Foster's, um, on Enrich. And I love the fact that Alison send going back through some of the, the old massive back catalogue of, of Enrich activities and finding that many of them do fit this kind of purpose, purposeful practice um, kind of categorisation. And that, for me, I think, going forward is where I will make the most out of my use of, of Enrich activities in that purposeful pra- uh, practice kind of bracket. And... Um, the other activities that perhaps don't fit the mould of purpose or practice, I think if I'm going to use those, that they'll be kind of the end of half-term activities, where, where in the past I may have used some kind of designer bedroom pro, uh, project or something like that, or <laughs> I'll never forget Anne Watson on the podcast. Talking about measuring a car park activity, where the the question she always asks is, "What on earth maths is the kid who's left holding the rope learning?" And I think that's where those kind of activities fall down. But where they enrich activities that perhaps don't fit the mould of purposeful practice can come into play. That's that's doing maths for the sake of maths, just interesting maths that, that you know perhaps students have never seen before. I I think that there's a definite place for them there, but. The bulk of my use of Enrich going forward will be in the mold of purposeful practice where there's something specific I want students to to practice and Enrich will help me provide a really interesting way of doing so that may then lead to the generalization and so on. At the end of that process, and just to wrap up, cause my me, my me voice is going again here. Uh, just the final thing on, on GCSE resets, and I, I think that was really interesting that Alison talked about a teacher who'd been uh, reworking Key Stage Two um, enriched problems for a GCSE reset groups. I'm flipping out. G- GCSE reset is a nightmare to teach anyone who's taught it will know you've you've essentially got I mean, it's not always this, but the, the majority of students tend to be disaffected that they haven't chosen to do maths, they're having to do it um, to, to stay on the course or to get in the college. Um, by definition, they failed at maths. Um, in the past, they, they've probably had repeated failure, not just in terms of how many times they've taken taken the GCSE exam, but really kind of repeated negative experiences of mathematics. Um, and it can be tricky to teach, really tricky to teach, because these are students who are experiencing A-level for the first time. So perhaps in other subjects, they're being challenged, they're being pushed. It's all fresh, it's new, it's exciting. They're in sixth form. And yet then all of a sudden, they're back in a GCSE maths classroom doing stuff they've seen before, but failed before at it. And my process this year, and with GCSE resets, whenever I've I've taught it or I've worked with teachers who have been developing it, is to do two things. Um, The first is to use the model of teaching that that I've just talked about, example, problem pair and intelligently varied practice. I think it's the most effective because it gives students a taste of success and, and maybe they haven't tasted that success for a long time. So sharing in ratios, adding fractions, multiplying decimals, probability tree diagrams. I think if you set it out that way, example, problem pair, silent teacher, show call, intelligently very practice, kids taste success and they feel they can get it. But the flip side of that is for some kids, they won't even put the thought in needed to experience that success because they will see it as something that they failed at in the past. So if I say, right, today I'm going to teach you how to do a probability tree diagram, I'm going to teach it you really well and you're going to nail it. For some kids, they're going to say, well, no, forget it. I've, I've failed at probability tree diagrams for five years running. Why, why is this time going to be any different? And of course, for the success of any teaching strategy to work, for students to learn anything, they've got to think hard. If they're not thinking hard, if they're not dedicating as much of their working memory as possible, to mulling over these thoughts, concentrating on it, trying to make links with long-term memory and so on. If, if their mind's wandering, if their mind's consumed by thoughts of failure or distractions and so on, it doesn't matter how effective the teaching strategy is, students will not learn. So perhaps that's where purposeful practice comes into play. Perhaps that's when, if you can present something in a way that students haven't seen before, that's more interesting, that's more engaging in the best kind of use of that, that word Perhaps that's the way to get them practicing, but in a wider context that's going to give them that practice, but it's also going to re-engage them with mathematics, show them that they can be successful and show them that maths isn't the boring thing that they failed at for years and years in the past. So that's just about where I'm at. Um, again, I absolutely love talking to Alison and Charlie. I've wanted to them, uh, to have them on the show for ages. Um, I, I interviewed Alison for the first time uh, years ago for the Tesmaths podcast. She was one of my first guests on there, and I'm, I'm a huge fan, a huge fan of their work. Alison actually makes a cameo appearance in my book and the problem solving chapter. And um, so it, it's like, where's Wally sitting? Not saying Alison's a Wally, of course, but see if you can find that if you if you uh, if you've read my book. Anyway, so all that remains for me to do is to uh, thank Alison and Charlie for being absolutely wonderful guests and for the wonderful work that they do on MRich. Please check out MRich if you haven't uh, ever done so, if you haven't done so for a while. There is some absolute gold on there. And thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've uh, heard throughout the show. Uh, This show should well be sponsored by Beecham's because I'm absolutely drugged up to to my eyeballs here just (laughs) trying to get through this takeaway. But as I say, hopefully my annoying voice uh, hasn't been any more annoying than normal and and put you off a little bit. And thank you just to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping listening to these uh, episodes and, and telling me that you're getting a lot out of it. I know I say this all the time, but I've got some absolutely incredible guests lined up for the future. I'm so, so lucky and I'm so excited. And and the only reason I keep doing these, well, there's two reasons. One, because the selfishly I get to speak to and learn from my heroes. And secondly, because it just gives me such a buzz to, to know that these are resonating with teachers. Teachers are listening to them. It's kind of free CPD on the move. So... Um, yeah if you're enjoying these um, if you get a chance give give us a little review on iTunes uh, that that'd be much appreciated Um, and I shall return with a fresh episode very very soon take care of yourselves bye for now